Amen. The book of Esther, chapter 3 this morning as we continue our series on the call of God. And let's be reminded that if you are a born-again Christian and you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a call on your life. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, God has a call on your life too. He wants to come and be your Savior today. Esther chapter 3, the book of Esther, if you're wanting to know where that's at, is sort of middle ways in the Old Testament. Find the big books of Job and Psalms. They're easier to find, and then Esther is right before the book of Job. Today, as we examine the call of God, a couple things are at the very forefront. One, when you and I get in touch with the call of God in our life, we will be continually made aware that we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. In other words, every day that you and I live, we will be reminded as we live out the call of God that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. God always wants us to live bigger than ourselves. That's why when we accept and embrace the call of God, we must depend and rely upon God because it's way more than you and I could ever handle on our own. Because God's call is never going to lead us away from him, but always to him. Well, the book of Esther is all about that very subject. When you read and study the book of Esther, and especially the events surrounding the call of God, we realize that Esther and Mordecai and all the people that are mentioned in this book were part of something much bigger than themselves, and that is true for us as well. In fact, before I get into Esther chapters 3 and 4 this morning, let's go back in our minds all the way to the very almost beginning, Genesis chapter 3. After the fall of Adam and Eve, God comes and he speaks to Adam and Eve, but he also speaks to the serpent who was the embodiment of Satan. And he says to the serpent, because you have done this, I am now going to put hostility between you and this woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So we realize from that point on in history, Genesis 3.15, that we as human beings are part of something bigger than ourselves. We're not only part of what you and I can see every day. We are part of a supernatural, invisible, cosmic war that is going on between good and evil, between God and Satan, between Satan's offspring and God's offspring, which that's us, right? So that's what's happening in our lives every day. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And that's what was also happening in the book of Esther as well. And as they became more aware of God's call on their life, they realized, oh my goodness, my life isn't just about me. God didn't just put me here for me. God put me here for something greater than just me. He put me here for many others as well. And that's part of then why in the New Testament, God joins us together in the body of Christ because he doesn't want our life just to be about us and even just about us and him. He wants us to be about so many others. He wants to use our life to influence and impact so many others around us. So with that said, even though the call of God 
on Esther's life doesn't come until chapter 4. I want to begin this morning in chapter 3. We've got to sort of run up to it. The climax is really the call of Esther, but there's a lot going on in the backstory that you and I need to maybe become familiar with for the first time or remind ourselves of in the story of Esther. The, chapter 3 starts out with these words, sometime later, and I'll just say at this point, what that means to us is that it's been about four years since Esther became the queen to King Ahasuerus in Persia. So she's now been in that position for about four years, you see. And it says, sometime later, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadath, the Agagite, exalting him and setting his position above that of all the officials who were with him. So in other words, Haman becomes the second most powerful person in the Persian Empire, which was at that time the world-leading empire. Why does the Bible choose to remind us that he is an Agagite? For this reason, they were a sworn enemy of the Jewish people by birth. They were taught from the time they were children to hate Jewish people. Okay? So keep that in mind. Now, something else we need to keep in mind is that, wait a minute, this guy became the second most powerful person on the planet and he is a sworn enemy of the Jews by birth? God, what are you doing? Let's be reminded of something. I'll take you to two, or not we're going to go there, but I'll mention these two. The first one is in Romans 13, verse 1, where Paul says to all of us, the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, the Bible teaches there is no one in leadership in this world that either wasn't placed there by God or allowed to be there by God as part of his great big plan that, again, is what? Much bigger than us, okay? Much bigger than us. And then Daniel says, God is the one who deposes kings and exalts kings. No one is in leadership in this world unless they serve God's greater purpose. And that's why it is so bad for us as Christians to try to come to judgments and conclusions based on snapshots either in our own life or in the life of of the history of our earth. Because God doesn't operate that way. And it's, it's very short-sighted for us to take a chunk out of our life or a chunk out of history at any point and, and, and try to understand what are all the purposes of God in doing that or allowing that certain thing, whether it's, again, in our personal life or in the life of the history of this world, because God doesn't work from that small of a palette, if you will. He works with eternity in mind, and there's no human being who's ever been able, and nor will we ever be able, to, to wrap our minds around 
God's eternal purposes for everything. No way. And so even here, God is saying, I'm at work. And there's something bigger going on here. And even a Jewish person might say, God, why would you allow someone who is a sworn enemy of the Jews to ascend to such a high position? Because God has other purposes in mind that you and I can't understand. As a result, verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate were bowing and paying homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded. However, Mordecai did not bow, nor did he pay him homage. All I'll say about that is that our choices, whatever choices we choose to make, have great ramifications, whatever they are. And all of us as Christians have to choose in our life, what are we going to go along with? And what are we not going to go along with? And we're all going to be different. But the idea is we all have to realize that whether we choose to bow in that moment or not bow, it's going to have consequences either way. Then the servants of the king who were at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you violating the king's commandment? And after they had spoken to him day after day without him Paying attention to them, they informed Haman to see whether this attitude on Mordecai's part would be permitted. Furthermore, he had disclosed to them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing or paying homage to him, he was filled with rage. Let me stop at that moment and say this. Another important principle here, whatever fills a person ultimately controls a person. Whatever fills a person ultimately controls a person. The Bible tells us that Haman was filled with anger and rage. Guess what then? That's what controlled him. That's why the Bible teaches us as believers, be filled with what? The Spirit. So that you and I can produce the fruit of the Spirit by being filled with the Spirit. Whatever fills our life every day is what is going to control us. Haman was controlled by anger and rage, especially directed at the Jew. But the thought of striking out, verse 6, against Mordecai alone was repugnant to him, literally meaning of little or no value to Haman. He saw no value in just taking down Mordecai alone. He had something bigger in mind. Look at what it is. For he had been informed of the identity of Mordecai's people, so Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, that is, the people of Mordecai, who were in all the kingdom of Ahasuerus. Can I tell you? That was several million Jews. See, Hitler was not the first person to try to exterminate millions of Jews. That goes back. Why? Because we're all part of something bigger than ourselves. And that started in the garden at the fall in Genesis 3.15 when God said, hostility between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. And what is happening in the book of Esther? That very big picture plot is playing out behind the scenes. Okay? Guess what? There's a much bigger picture playing out in our lives right now than even what you and I are aware of or what we can totally see, even as Christians. 
which is why we've got to trust God because there's going to be things that happen just like that have been happening in this world and will continue to happen. And unless you and I are trusting God, we're going to scratch our head just like they would have scratched their head in Mordecai's day saying, God, what are you doing by allowing someone like Haman to get to this point where he could do these things? I don't understand God because God has a much bigger picture in mind. God doesn't work from snapshots. God works from eternity past to eternity future. And there's not a one of us that can even begin to understand that. So, he decides by casting sort of lots in verse 7 when he's going to exterminate the Jews. It was sort of something that they did back then. And even that, the Bible tells us, God was in control of because God controlled what came out in that casting of lots. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a particular people. Notice that Haman foregoes full disclosure. He doesn't say the Jews. He said, hey, there's a certain group of people in your kingdom and they're dispersed throughout all of your provinces and their laws differ from those of other peoples. Furthermore, they do not observe the king's laws. It is not appropriate for the king to provide a haven for them. Literally, in the Hebrew, it is not in your best interest, king, to tolerate them anymore. If the king is so inclined, verse 9, let an edict be issued to destroy them. I'll even pay you 10,000 talents of silver to be conveyed to the king's treasury. Well, where's all that money coming from? It's going to come from the Jews' assets and their uh, confiscation of property after they're all dead. That's where it's going to come from. In fact, you see that up in verse 13. To loot the plunder of their possessions, chapter 3, verse 13. So the king removed his signet ring, verse 10, from his hand and gave it to Haman, who was hostile toward the Jews, literally the enemy of the Jews. And the king replied to Haman, keep your money and do with those people whatever you wish. Stop. Do we not see the callous lack of concern for the value of human life here? The king's basically given the okay to Haman that millions of Jews can be destroyed. And he's like, ah, oh, keep your money. Do whatever you want to to those people. Total callousness, total lack of regard for human life. Millions of people are going to die under his rule and leadership. He doesn't care. He doesn't, doesn't care at all. So the royal scribes went out, verse 12, and from verse 12, basically down through verse 15, it's just giving us the details about the edict that goes out to destroy all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Now, I want to point one more thing out before we get to chapter 4. Notice what the king and Haman are doing at the end of verse 15. Sitting down in the palace, having a drink. They've just decided to kill millions of human beings and wipe them off the earth, and they're sitting down in their nice, cozy palace having a drink. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? And notice it does say that in the city of Susa, there was an uproar. 
There were a lot of upset people, not just Jews. There were a lot of upset people. What's going on and how could the king and all that, how could this happen? And there were many that maybe even thought, where's God in all this? I'll tell you where God is. He's right smack dab in the middle of all of it. And he's not sleeping. In fact, keep your finger there at the end of chapter 3. We're going to come right back and pick it up in chapter 4 and go to one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 121. There's some things that the Bible tells us God can't do that should be a great comfort to us. We're comforted by the things that the Bible says God can do. There's also some things that the Bible tells us God can't do that ought to be a great comfort and encouragement to us. And we find a couple of them here in Psalm 121. Where's God? Is God sleeping? No. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 121. I look up toward the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. Oh, we need to hear that and know that and embrace that today. May he not allow your foot to slip. May your protector not sleep. Look, Israel's protector does not sleep or slumber. Guess what? God can't sleep. God can't fall asleep on the job. God can't become unaware of any little detail that happens in our life or on the earth. God can't do that. There's nothing that ever happens in your life, my life, the life of this church, the life of our country, the life of this world, that God is not fully aware of every detail. That's who God is. And God never is asleep in your life when something happens. He's not not paying attention. He's not distracted like we are. He is locked in and he is firmly fulfilling his purpose in this world and in our lives at all times. The Lord is your protector. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect you in all that you do now and forevermore. You either believe that or you don't. But here's what God can't do. God's never asleep on the job. Nothing takes God by surprise. God wasn't up there in heaven when King Ahasuerus promoted Haman and went, oh my goodness, that slipped by me. I, I didn't see that coming. What am I going to do? No. God's always a bazillion steps ahead of anything that happens even in our life. And anything that you and I are going to face in the future, God's already there. And he's got us there just like he's got us here. So back to Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai became aware of all that, he had been, that had been done, when he found out what the plan was, he tore his garments and put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city crying out in a loud and bitter voice. Can I say amen to that? And I'll tell you why. Because in our society today, even as Christians many times, we miss out on what the Old Testament Jew did is when something bad happened, they dealt with it, they allowed their emotions to feel it, and they expressed it. They didn't stuff it. 
It was a bad day because Mordecai and every Jew in the Persian Empire was going to be wiped out. And he wasn't just going to sit there and act like everything was okay. And he wasn't just going to keep telling himself everything was going to be okay when it looked like everything was not okay. And he wasn't going to stuff down those emotions. No, he was going to express it. So he put on the sackcloth and ashes and he goes out and he weeps and he mourns and he lets it out. It's okay to let it out. In fact, God would rather you let it out, even if it's negative, than to stuff it in and pretend like everything's okay when everything's not okay. In fact, I hope many of you will come back Wednesday night. We're going to talk about that. About how when testing comes, fake doesn't help. Can't pretend when the test comes. The test shows what's really there or what's really not there. So, verse 2. He went no further than the king's gate. This is important. For notice, no one was permitted to enter the king's even gate clothed in sackcloth. What's that teach us? A general principle about ancient Middle Eastern kingdoms. They tried to hide the leaders from the reality of what was really going on with the rest of us even if it was superficial. See, they were in the palace. And it was supposed to be like everything in the palace was always okay, no matter what suffering and pain and stuff was going on with the regular people. Can I tell you, not much has changed, has it? There are those in leadership all over the world who are leading people in their countries or in their businesses or whatever, and, and the common people sometimes are, are really going through hard times and suffering pain, and they're totally removed from it because they don't want to come down and be a part of what's really going on. Well, again, nothing's new, the Bible says. That's the way it's always been. But again, let's not forget that that removal from reality is superficial at best because guess what? Those people have the same pain and suffering come into their life as we all do. They're not exempt from it. They just deal with it in other ways, many times in self-destructive ways that aren't good for them either. So the Bible says, throughout each and every province where the king's edict, verse 3, chapter 4, and law were announced, there was considerable mourning among the Jews, along with fasting, weeping, and sorrow. Sackcloth and ashes were characteristic of many. And when Esther's female attendants, finally we get to Esther, inform her about Mordecai's behavior. Now, remember, she doesn't know anything about the edict. She's hidden from that. She's, the, she's part of the, you know, the elite that's up there in the palace that doesn't really know what's going on. All she's heard is that her great uncle Mordecai, who raised her because her mom and dad died at a very young age, and he's sort of like a father figure to her, is very upset about something. So she, in her mind, is trying to comfort her great uncle. So she sends him, notice verse 4, some garments. Retail therapy, <laughs> Old Testament style. <laughs> Uncle, I, I, you, you seem upset, so I'm going to send you some clothes to cheer you up. That's the way it is, okay? Again, not much has changed in a couple thousand years. 
But notice it says that he would not accept them. That's actually key. Why? Because Mordecai's refusal actually then prompts Esther to seek further communication. Remember, this is before cell phones, so they couldn't just text back and forth to each other. She's totally removed from everything that's going on outside the palace in the palace. And yet it's through the go-between that they have between each other that she's realizing my great uncle is really upset about something and he won't even accept my present, my gift. It must really be bad, so I've got to find out more. So notice, Esther calls one of her attendants, a man by the name of Hathok. She instructs him to find out the cause and reason for Mordecai's behavior. Now let me say this. We could go by this man named Hathok. He plays a really important role here. I mean, he's got literally the fate of millions of people in his hands as he goes back and forth to relay messages between Esther and Mordecai, which reminds us of this principle. So often in the work of the Lord, God uses obscure people to accomplish important tasks. People that you and I would never hear about, and yet they are key people. People behind the scenes. People not up front and yet people performing an absolutely vital part as they play their part, which we're going to get to in just a moment. So Hathok, verse 6, goes to Mordecai, and basically, verse 7, Mordecai relates everything that's going on, the amount of money that's sort of the uh, bribe, if you will, that Haman was going to give to King Ahasuerus, he, he even gives him, notice, verse 8, a written copy of the law so that Hathok can go back with literally proof in his hand that this thing is really happening and it's really bad. All the Jews in Persia are going to be destroyed. Several, several million people. So, he also then, notice this, verse 8, gave instructions that she should go to the king to implore him and petition him on behalf of her people. Now, let me stop here because this is an important part of this story. When we talk about God's call, we need to define it in, in, in its broadest terms. God's call can be a specific assignment like this one's going to be. It can be a lifetime assignment like it was on my life when God called me to be a pastor. It can take different forms, but the idea is Whatever God's call is, what we've seen the first couple of weeks is that God called directly from himself to this person. Now, one of the differences here today is that God is going to use another human being to be the instrument of his call on another human being's life. You see, God's call to Esther comes through Mordecai. Now think about that. Sometimes God comes directly to us and calls us and summons us and invites us to something that he wants us to do, that he's planned and purposed for our lives, that's part of the bigger picture. And other times God's going to use the relationship, the influence, the words of somebody else 
to place them into our mind and heart and begin to draw us to that calling. Now think about that on both sides of it. That means that God may want to use you sometime to speak into the life of somebody else, to plant something into their mind and heart for God to begin to work on through his spirit. Or God may be placing someone in your life to speak into your life. And the question is, going back to even week one of this series, are we paying attention or are we listening as God speaks to us? Because sometimes God will speak to us through his word. Sometimes God will speak to us through his spirit. And sometimes, like here in Esther, God will speak to us through other people. Sometimes God will speak to us through circumstances. God has a multifaceted way of speaking to his people. Are we listening to God as he speaks to us through others? Are we open to God to be used by him to speak into other people's lives if we truly feel like he's leading us to do something like that? That's what was happening here, okay? So Hathok, verse 9, returned and related Mordecai's instructions to Esther. Then Esther replied to, wouldn't it have been easier if they had a cell phone? <laughs> I mean, come on. Back, and, but can you imagine how the anticipation, you know, it wasn't just like instant. It was like, I've got to send this message and I've got to wait. And I can't control what's going on there. I can't see, I, I, you know, a lot of trust involved here. So Esther replied to Hathok with instructions for Mordecai. Verse 10, all the servants of the king and the people of the king's provinces know that there's only one law applicable to any man or woman who comes in uninvited to the king in the inner court, even a queen. That person could be put to death unless the king extends to him or her the gold scepter, permitting him to be spared. And I've not been invited to come to the king for some 30 days. There's so much here I could say about marriage and relationships and all that kind of stuff. But that's for another message. The idea is in that culture and at that time, even though she was the queen, she had to be invited in by the king or else her life could be. So she sort of pushes back a little bit. She's like, uh, I'm resisting that request of you. And isn't it interesting that so far, everybody that we've looked at, we've only been in it three weeks, but whether it was Moses, whether it was Samuel, now with it's Esther, it's, it's never like a full embracement right at first. There's always like a little bit of something, right? Notice verse 12. When Esther's reply, though, was conveyed to Mordecai, he says some very important things to her that really shaped the rest of this message this morning. He said, take this, back, this answer back to Esther. First of all, don't imagine that because you're a part of the king's household that you will be the one Jew who will escape. That's first thing. In other words, eventually, Esther, they're going to find out because she's never revealed that she's a Jew. They're going to find out your heritage and you're going to go down like the rest of us. So I'll start there. Second, Mordecai was confident that God would preserve the Jewish people. So he says, if you keep quiet at this time, liberation and protection for the Jews will appear from another source. In other words, you may refuse God's calling, but God will just find somebody else to bless and to do it for him. Because our refusal to accept God's calling and embrace God's calling never frustrates the purposes of God. 
God's purposes and plan will be carried out. The reason why we should embrace it is because we're blessed when we're willing to be a part of what God invites us to be a part of. God doesn't need any of us. Let's, he doesn't need any. He could do it all on his own. He uses us so that we can be blessed by being used by God. We lose out when we don't embrace the calling. Not God, not his plan or purpose. He'll find some other way to get it done and we'll be the ones to miss out. That's why I encourage all of us through this Call of God series, don't miss out on the calling God has for you in your life right now because it's not going to affect God negatively. It's not going to affect this church negatively. It's not going to affect the world negatively because God will find somebody else to step up and step in and do that and be blessed for doing it. You and I will be the ones that miss out. And then he says this. It may very well be that you have achieved royal status for such a time as this. This statement clearly from Mordecai to Esther expresses the conviction of God being in complete control of the circumstances of our life and the reality of a divine calling. Because he says, Esther, may I remind you that maybe the reason you are the queen of Persia is because God had an assignment for you. And maybe you had to wait four years just sort of biding your time as the queen for that to roll around because you needed to develop a relationship with King Ahasuerus and maybe some other officials to get this done completely because God's never in a hurry, unlike us. And maybe the whole reason you are in the place you're at at the time you are there is because God has a specific assignment for you. So let's, let's turn that around to each of us this morning because that's really why we're here. We need to grapple and grasp with that very principle ourselves. It is no accident that any of us in this room are alive at this particular time in history. God chose for you and I to be born when we were born, in the place we were born, in the time we were born, giving us again as we go back to even before our birth and how God designed us with the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the temperament and all that because God has a specific assignment or calling or a task that he wants us to perform and he put us in that place so that we could do it. so that we could do it. He had us in mind, just like he had Esther in mind. Nobody knew what was coming four years down the road when God, just like he allowed Haman to get where Haman got to, when God put Esther in that position because Esther found favor and blessing with King Ahasuerus. By the way, this story of Esther also reminds us that God can provide favor and blessing to his people even in the hard places. It was not an easy place for this one young Jewish girl to exist in the Persian hierarchy. That was not an easy place, even though it might be cushy in one sense. It was not the easiest place to live and serve God 
And yet God provided favor and blessing in the hard places. Don't ever forget that. And that's something you and I need to remember as well. What experiences do you have in your life? What have you been through? See, none of that's wasted. That's what, that's what verse 14 is saying. It may well be that you were allowed to go through what you went through for a particular reason that's much bigger than yourself. Which is why, again, we can't judge or come to conclusions even in our, about our own lives because those snapshots just don't make sense if they're taken on their own. The only way some things make sense in our life, in the life of our country, in the life of the history of our world, is when they're looked at over an eternal perspective, which is the only way God operates. He doesn't operate in the snapshot. He operates from eternity past to eternity future. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, verse 15. Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast in my behalf. Don't eat and don't drink for three days, night or day. My female attendants and I will also fast in the same way. And afterward, I will go to the king, even though it violates the law. If I perish, I perish. I love Esther. Because I believe that the Spirit of God came upon her as Mordecai was, was used by God to place this call in her life. And I think the Spirit of God was transforming her because we know that because God used her to save her people. We know the end of the story. You see, I think Esther changed from fear to faith, from hesitation to confidence and determination, from concern only for her own safety to concern for her people's survival. She rose to the challenge when she embraced and accepted that call. And I don't think she was being fatalistic here at all when she said, if I perish, I perish. I think she was simply saying, if I die, I die, but I'm going down by embracing the call that God has for me. Oh, that more of us as Christians would have that young lady's attitude so what do we learn today by looking at the call of esther well the first thing is this the gra to grasp god's call in our life is to make us continually aware of the fact that we are always part of something bigger than ourselves and that you and I can't judge or come to conclusions or come to determinations about any particular snapshot in our life at any point because it's always part of a bigger, greater plan that God has. And it's, not, it's way beyond us. It touches so many other people that you and I can't even begin to fathom how great God's purpose is. But the second main thing is this, and you can leave the book of Esther and now go with me over to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And I'll close with these verses. Ephesians 4 verse 16. Our responsibility within God's great purpose isn't to do every part. It is just to do our part. Our responsibility within God's great purpose isn't to do every part. 
It is just to do our part. And God is calling us to step out of our passivity and take action. Notice verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul speaking here about the makeup of the church and why God gave pastors and even teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry is for this reason. From him, Christ, who is the head, the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. Don't miss this next phrase. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. In love. So a question we all need to ask ourselves is this. Do I know what my part is? And am I doing my part? Otherwise, the body is not going to function to its full potential until every Christian buys in and does their part. And God is not asking us to do anyone else's part. God is simply asking us to do just our part. But sometimes even in this world today, can I say it's hard to stay in our lane. And it's hard for others to stay in their lane and get out of our lane. I'm not going to make this the ending of this message about me except to use me as an example, hopefully to encourage you. In these last six and seven months, there have been a lot of people who have tried to tell me as the pastor of this church how to pastor this church and what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing and all of that. And I just want to encourage you. I just have to keep coming back and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Just help me to do my part, God. I'm not called to do what other people think is my part. I'm called to do my part before God, and that's it. And I'm not called to do somebody else's part any more than you're called to do somebody else's part. That's on them. But each one of us is to do our part. 